everybody. Welcome back to the Music Buds podcast. This is episode number 43, and my name is Henry. This week, I'm honored to be joined by composer Ron Fish, known partly for his work on the God of War video game franchise, as well as Batman Arkham City and Asylum, and many others. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk, as as I've said to you before. I really am a, a fan of your work, so thank you very much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure being here, Henry. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, how's life for you these days? I'm kind of recuperating from a three-month tour there in China, mm. Beijing, where I was working on a project that I, I guess I can discuss it, but it's the uni- the new Universal theme park. So that was Ooh. quite a cool experience and uh, doing mixing and sound design over there for three months and very quite, yeah, you know, the a different lifestyle for sure than here in America. So that was an interesting experience. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I I guess kind of kicking things off, how is it that you got started in in music? Was, was music something you had always wanted to to do? Uh, Music was always played in my household. My mother was a pianist Hmm. and she would be playing classical music um, about five hours a day. She would put the crib next to her piano and she just continued playing all the time. So I'd be hearing classical music throughout my early days. Uh, and then after that, I, I found some band called the Beatles and went, <laughs> wow, this is also pretty cool. So, uh, and then, you know, Rolling Stones and all that kind of stuff. So it was a very, and then it was jazz and I, I kind of uh, lighted onto the Buddy Rich big band. So kind of an eclectic um, listening palette when I was younger. Um, but I, you know, I always did appreciate the classics. So I would say, um, you know, that I've always had music in my life pretty much. Yeah. Well, how did, uh, composing, uh, come along? Composing came along slower as I was a drummer. Um, for most of my years, I was drumming for a living. Um, but I always noodled on a piano um, and I went to Berkeley College of Music for some time there and studied with an arranger uh, called Mike Gibbs, who used to work uh, with a Mahavishnu John McLaughlin uh, orchestra. So um, they were, he was amazing. And he taught me so much about uh, musical constructs and how we as listeners actually listen to music and how we digest music. Um, he taught me quite a lot as far as arranging. And from that point on, I decided that I needed to express myself musically rather than just be playing drums, which there's no knock on drums because I still love them. Sure. But uh, I needed something larger to be able to control. And, and that was in composition. That was the way to get through that. Yeah. Skipping ahead a, a little bit with the, the God of War video games, which I mean, these when I was growing up, you know, these games. I mean, and they still are. They're like these legendary games. I mean, there people were just obsessed with them and couldn't wait for the next one. And and I was very much uh, part of that group. And one thing that I, I think is so great with your music is that it's these tracks are very heavy in in percussion and wind instruments, but also with choirs. There are these great uh, choir sequences and in different parts of the the soundtrack. Is that kind of it uh, requires a, a fairly challenging component uh, of doing music like this, or is it fairly even in terms of the challenge uh, across the board? 
Okay, so to give you some background there on the God of War, uh, there was a number of us actually, there was uh, four major uh, components of four different composers who um, under the, the talents of the music, um, I would say like, okay, so Chuck Dowd was really the guy that was supervising the group. And then underneath him, he had also music supervisors. All of those people at Sony were the really the intelligence of knitting together this crazy quilt of different composers and different styles. Um, I'd say what was what they did the best was understanding who had the strongest aspect of music composition hmm. um, and then assign those pieces to to those composers that exhibited a, a song, you know, more of a typical kind of a style sure. that would fit. So that's truly the best use of uh, music supervisors, understanding the talents of who you're working with and then uh, kind of shepherding them along. Um, none of us were really known at that time uh, in the video game world. And it was early enough in video games where you could make an impression and, uh, and still it, it wasn't such a risk factor involved in it and then spending, you know, umpteenth millions of dollars mm. on a particular game. In, in particular, the God of War series, although the very first one was the, f so it was interesting because the first one was the one that would set the stage for number two and number three of the God of War series as far as what the sound palette would be, which was heavy on percussion, very aggressive scoring and choir. When you ask about the choir, so it, I would say the, one of the very first things that the music supervisor that was working that I worked with, um, his very first, his name was Clint Bajek, and he's just an extremely talented guy in his own right, wonderful to work with, just a great guy. And his very, very first thing was do not use any synth sounds, no mm -hmm. synthesizer sounds. So it had to be organic, and that made it more interesting and complicated at the same time because using organic sounds to create that kind of chaos in the orchestra and that kind of aggression was a bit challenging. But obviously, we rose to the challenge because it became kind of an iconic soundtrack. Um, using the choir, um, you have to realize, so we were using, I believe, in the very first one, we didn't really use much live and then when it became such a success, then I said, okay, now we can mitigate risk and, and use right. a lot. Um, so we had to use sample libraries that were available at that time. Um, uh, using a choir is simpler than using a solo because the large sound gets lost in, in detail. You can't tell it is lack of detail when you're using hmm. very large ensembles. So whatever was available, I know we all used whatever we had in our libraries. Um, and then eventually it went to real, real singers, real choir hmm. on two and three. And uh, in terms of uh, all the, the different uh, people and parts that you were describing are, so is it, was the, the collaboration, so to speak, was that, was it just you and a music supervisor or were you also in contact with the other composers or was it fairly closed off? You're just doing your part and then they're doing theirs. Uh, interesting question. So it was more silos. Um, and that's why I'm saying the uh, the group that was uh, in charge of the God of War series at that time, which was spearheaded by Clint Bajakin, a group underneath and working with Clint and Chuck Dowd, who was above him. That whole group was just extremely talented at being able to knit together 
uh, a soundtrack that doesn't sound like, uh, you know, oh, there's this guy wrote that, and this guy wrote that, and they don't, they have nothing to do with each other. But in reality, we didn't really have that much communication between the composers. I mean, if you want to lift up the phone, say, how are you doing? Yeah. But <laughs> sure. we didn't like say, you know, hey, um, let me hear what you've just written, because I'm going to be writing something that's just like that. <laughs> so uh, we didn't do that at all. And, uh, you know, the, the guys from Sony made sure that it all made sense in the large scale of what the whole game would be. So they really controlled who they were talking to and who they were assigned to uh, get a piece of music out of like, and, and make sure that it was fitting within the universe of uh, God of War. I'd say uh, God of War 3, there was more, slightly more collaboration, but then again, it was assigned by the music supervisor saying, could you take this theme and work it into the next piece, you know, for Hades or something like that. Hmm. And somebody might have worked the other theme and I were to take that theme and work it within Hades. So there was a little bit more of the collaboration on, on God of War 3. Gotcha. And, you know, I mean, what's what's cool about those games is it's it's very, like, mythological and fantastical. Was that was it pretty fun getting to play within that kind of world? Great. It was great. A lot of fun. I mean, when you have, so let's say I would be assigned Kronos. So it's say, okay, Kronos, and you look up in the encyclopedia, what's Kronos? And it's like, okay, 30-foot guy, you know, huge. And, and you read about his background. What was nice about it was so colorful. Or writing for the Medusa or writing for some of these characters, extremely colorful characters, obviously, being mythological and having a lot of interesting background to them. It, it lends more like, you know, instrumentation can be so different for these kind of characters. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Bernard Herrmann, who used to write oh, yeah. a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So um, not that I could pull out a harp and just do some wild stuff on it, but it made you think differently. It wouldn't be like, okay, we're just going to do an ostinato line on the strings and be done with it. You know, I tried at least to pull some oddball um sounds that I could then use within the music. And it made me feel like I was connecting to the particular character I was writing for. Right. Uh, and, uh, and with that, uh, I also wanted to make sure to touch on that same aspect with some of the, the Batman games, like uh, Batman Arkham city and asylum, because these, those games deal with these really crazy super villains who are just so psychologically, you know, disturbed and, and um, really? as well as of course, uh, dealing with, with Batman, was it, uh, again, not to be too repetitive, but what was the process like uh, of doing music for a world like Batman where the characters are so eccentric in a lot of ways and so stylized and also um, similar to God of War, they're also very iconic. Was that a, a, a pretty interesting project or projects to work on? Yes, it was because uh, Rocksteady at that time um, wasn't really that well known as a development studio especially with Arkham uh, Asylum. And so it was interesting watching um, kind of a group come on to themselves. Like they all of a sudden developed unbeknownst to a lot of people who weren't, they weren't under like the constant radar of what Warner Brothers and Idols was looking at. So they were really working and just creating a really marvelous game without a lot of interference from the upper, uh, upper, you know, echelon of, um, supervisors and people um, here in the United States. By the time that we were aware of what they were really doing, it became obvious that they had something really good going on there. Now, as far as working with, I worked with Nick, who was the audio director for Rocksteady. Mm. And 
uh, this gentleman knows how to write music. So it was a pleasure, you know, uh, talking to him or working with him. Uh, on some stuff, it was more, more of a, a concept that he would give me. And then you go and write a piece of music based on that. And some others was like, okay, Mad Hatter. Well, uh, I'm just going to write something that's really mad, you know, <laughs> really kooky, odd, oddball and screwy. Uh, for a scarecrow, it obviously I had to feel like a bad uh, trip, you know, like hallucination. Um, certain things were clear. Joker, I always thought was kind of interesting to write his theme to a certain extent was uh, a waltz because there's something about him that just seems like he's, he's electric and yet he's very light on his toes. And I thought it would be interesting if he were to dance a waltz for some reason. And so I wrote kind of a very odd waltz for him. And uh, to give you a, a great example is Clayface boss battle um, when I was dealing with Nick, who has a background in conservatory um, from England, uh, he told me, uh, you know, think of the rite of spring. Um, and I went, wow, that's great. I mean, that <laughs> that's a heck of a piece to listen to and try and come up with a concept that might work for Clayface. And the whole thing of Clayface Boss, which is a difficult piece, is that... Um, the time on it, uh, you know, it, it, it changes from all kinds of time signatures and it constantly is changing around. The reason why I thought that would be an interesting thought is because Clayface himself is always changing. So it would be interesting to have the music constantly also changing meter. And so I wrote that one in seven and five and four and all kinds of different meters because it never settles, which is kind of fun. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, one thing with, with just... What you've been talking about already is like I think that while you know getting to work on your own uh, in a lot of ways could be uh, a great process, it seems like the different collaborations that you've been able to do across these different games, whether it's the the music supervisors or other composers or whoever it may be, it seems like that would be such a a creatively stimulating partnership or or process. Well, if I were to if I was audio directing, which I actually did do in Disney consumer products, but uh, not in these games, if uh, first of all, these two titles basically that you mentioned obviously were handled well by whoever was in charge of doing these particular projects. The uh, saying that uh, composers, generally speaking, oddly enough, I think are kind of uh, loners mm. in, in a large sense. Um, Band members, it's something else. If you're in a band and you're playing and you're creating music right there on stage, because I used to play in nightclubs for 36 years or something, a long time. Mm -hmm. So basically, when you're playing with other people, you need to communicate immediately right then and there. I mean, you are creating on the fly and you are, you're communicating with uh, however many band members you might have. When you're composing something, it's a, kind of a different thing, in particular with the way studios are now set up where you have, uh, you know, gobs of Ram and you can emulate a full orchestra and you can create hybrid scores and all that kind of stuff. There's almost no need to be sitting with somebody else. Right. Uh, and working with somebody else. Uh, you can, and people do, but I would say that it's not common that, that, that is done. Hmm. Um, well, uh, Shifting gear uh, uh, a little bit, I, I think one really interesting part of your career that you had mentioned right at the very beginning is this, your work with different theme parks, like you've, you've done some with Walt Disney and, and others. 
like, how do you, what's the process, uh, I, I guess, to narrow it down? Like if, if you get a, whether it's a, a ride or, or an attraction of whatever kind, what are the, the process of getting started to doing music for something like that? Like what are, do you get guidelines for, from the, the company or, or, or uh, director, so to speak? Or like, how do you get started with that kind of project? Uh, I would say that they're, they're similar in only one regard. And that is in theme parks and there are different kinds of rides. And I was in Walt Disney Imagineering sound department for eight years. So I experienced that for quite a long time. You know, theme parks actually, when you're composing and you're considering how you're writing, you are writing with moving through space, most likely, and it's not always the case either, but if you're doing a dark ride, you're moving through areas and how the music affects you in a particular area or a zone is, has to be considered very seriously when you're considering the writing the whole score. So it's, you have to take pieces and segments and write that way. So in that regard, it almost feels slightly interactive because it's not a completely um, like we start here one hour and we finish down at the end of the movie. It's, it's in sections and they, all sections need to work together in little pieces as it were. So that's very similar in a way to uh, video game scoring. Hmm. And that's the only thing that I think is similar because in video games, I'm not literally moving through different spaces and how, I'm affected by one room has a lot to do with the next room I will be in. So if I'm doing a video game score, uh, that is really kind of, it, it is the p- place that I'm in and I could be there for like a half an hour, an hour, depending how well I'm doing the video game in a, usually a dark ride. There's an exact amount of time that it's in, I'm in a particular zone right. so that, you know, we know exactly how long I'm going to be there. Also the differences in video games, some people have the opportunity to actually play the game and install the music themselves and see how it's doing. Um, other reality is that you kind of given a general description of something and go write something and then we'll critique it after you've written and handed it in. And if it's perfect, we'll stick it in the game. If it's not, whatever. In a theme park, you're usually dealing right away with the media designer or whoever's as liaison between the show director and yourself as a composer. And it's very clear before on exactly what you'll be writing and how long it'll be and what you expect to be feeling in that particular zone. And, uh, and zones just compromise the whole ride. They could be broken up into 10 zones, 12 zones, whatever. Right. So there's a lot of discussion. And also there's, you know, there's a tremendous amount of money going towards a, uh, a ride that's only three and a half minutes long, let's say, right? And a video game, it could be, 20 hours of experience, 40 hours of experience. It could be the same amount of money going into both, but one is a very short, predictable experience. And the other one is not predictable. Hmm. And now just because I, I've, I've never uh, been a part of that process when you're doing music, like for example, I think one of the recent ones you worked on was this Pacific Rim yeah. uh, attraction. Are you like, it, when you're d- describing the different zones and, and talking to people, are you like there seeing it or are you getting like footage of it or pictures? Like, Oh yeah. Great question. I, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Because generally speaking, there is um, again, in video games, you know, people are working on a level, right? So it could be two, three, four people working on a level 
and it could change at any time. Like all of a sudden, let's take out the helicopters, you know, instead let's put a jet. Oh, let's not have any jet. Let's not have any helicopters. Okay. <laughs> why don't we just, and, and so you could be running after a rabbit down a hole for video games when you're actually building a building that might cost a hundred million dollars to build this building. Aren't that many changes. So, you know, uh, you got to be really clear about what it is exactly you're doing at any time. And you're working usually with the team to a certain extent. You're working with the team, making sure that everything is exactly what you thought it was going to be. And there isn't a massive change. So when you're doing it, like I did Pacific Rim, you can't literally be there until they've built the building. So you have to pre-visualize what it is that it's going to be like. So generally speaking, there's usually a previs team that builds the length of the ride and what you'll be seeing on the ride. And it's usually within, and again, we're talking about within feet of being accurate. <laughs> and it could even be centimeters of being accurate. This has nothing to do with a video game whatsoever. Right. It's dealing with distance, physical distance. So, you know, when I audio directed that, uh, those two uh, dark rides last year in Indonesia, before I ever got there, everything was worked out beforehand. I mean, I did the sound design, the mix, uh, supervised, installed the mix um, on site and worked with the, uh, you know, in both cases, there were different composers, which was fun and fun working with them because uh, neither of them had really that much experience doing uh, rides, one person more than the other. But I knew exactly how to compose for those particular zones so that when we got on site, there wouldn't be any question as to how the music is knitted together on site. Hmm. Uh, I, I know that, that sounds like such a, I mean, cause I just, cause I, I've really never had any, any experience with it. That sounds really interesting. I mean, and, and cause e even though there are those kind of strict guidelines, I feel like as, as you were saying, it is very different from, you know, video games or movies. And so I feel like that would be a, a cool process to, to be a part of. It's a great process because within three and a half minutes to four and a half minutes, which is usually the longest ride is four and a half minutes, you have to deliver a message that you cannot forget. Now, right. you know, in audio terms also, um, on like Pack Rim, for instance, one of the longest rides I've ever been on. You got off the ride, you got back on the ride. It was the most complex mishmash. It was fascinating. Like hmm. it was something these guys attempted that nobody's attempted before. <laughs> but that being said, you know, you have to pack a big experience into a very short amount of time. And when I mixed it, I mixed it real hot, like it's a rock concert. And when you pass through that thing and you finished, you knew you experienced something. There's no question. When you got off of that vehicle, you went like, yeah, okay. Now, a movie, movie could be an hour and a half to two hours. It has a long time to express itself. In a ride, it's jam-packed. And if you're lucky... You have a great sound system, as I had in Pack Rim, where you have like 4,000 watts per room. And, you know, you can really experience a theatrical experience in a very short amount of time. But uh, again, syncing of the sounds that might be coming from the actual vehicle and syncing it to uh, speakers that are in the room is an interesting, another discipline that has to be understood how to sync all these sounds together in real time. Yeah. And I, uh, I think uh, just being a and someone who who enjoys these kinds of attractions, it is cool to think about. Like at least for me, when you know, one of the things I I always remember is the music. Or like when you think of you know theme parks, and and uh, in a lot of ways, 
the it's like you know p- pieces of iconic music so it's kind of cool getting to create music that so many people are going to experience and connect with and and uh you know uh kind of have that have that memory when they when they leave you know yeah it's kind of interesting like if it's a it's a small world after all right it's if it's a piece that is like one minute in length for instance and it's being played numerous different ways it tends to you know burn a hole in your head you know <laughs> get off the ride you can't forget it because you've sure. heard it played different times um and then there's other rides which are more sound design it's it's okay as being an audio director is a fascinating thing having done sound design and music these two disciplines are very different in a lot of ways. Sound design to me is kind of a wow factor of the moment. It's very difficult to leave anything you've ever heard in sound design and go, yeah, man, I remember that sound that let me hum that sound. It doesn't really stay with you, but it's like popcorn. You're eating it when you're experiencing it. It's kind of a rush. It's a high listening to sound design music on the other hand is something that you can possibly leave remembering what it was that you experienced because it was a melody of some sort or something like that and you can walk away remembering it but sound design is something that delivers a punch immediate and right very different experience the two of them two different yeah um and, and now just because i i am very curious like with, with sound design um what like what are the 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 kinds of sounds are are you producing like i, I just and i it sounds like a really vague broad question but I, i'm really just just curious as to what what like what are examples of things that you you do for the sound design projects oh um hmm it's an interesting question so so as a composer i don't limit myself to that's what a violin should do um, or that's what a French horn should be doing here or any of those kinds of things. I really, um, initially I consider sound, you know, music is just part of sound to me. It's organized sound, but every instrument has a particular palette or a tone to it. And then there are instruments that don't have any tone or palette to it. That is recognizable instantly. That to me is sound design. So it could be, it's a wide open experience it could be anything and and i mean anything right so it could be just a low frequency that hums along in the background and you don't know you're hearing it but it's playing along with the music it could be a screech it could be a scream backwards it could be something squashed and mashed until it's mutilated and you have no idea what it is anymore it depends what you want to express at that particular point in time so i've used sound design a lot actually in god of war where i thought oh you know Having an orchestra just doing whatever they do is really cool, but I can also create something inside the music that's just really bizarre, which is com- comprised of really sound design elements and not necessarily um, a C major chord, you know? Yeah. And uh, because you're someone who has spent so much time in, in that world, especially with uh, with sound design, when you're, whether it's, I don't know, going to theme parks or, you know, watching a movie, whatever it may be. Do you kind of uh, just inherently notice the sound design or the music, or is that something you just kind of, or, or, or not? Is it are, because you are so experienced with it. Are you noticing that more so than another, another kind of person might? Yeah, that's a real interesting, <laughs> easy question to answer. Yes. 
I do listen very carefully and I analyze a lot what I hear because in order to continue learning for me, it means I need to continue to listen carefully to what other people are doing. And so when you listen to other people, including sound design or music, whatever that might be, that should inform you as an artist of what other people are doing. So in that regard, what you were saying about collaborative, it's collaborative in the fact that I'm listening to other people producing things and going, wow, that person just did something that is just so cool. And I really need to express that myself. I need to understand what that person did and absorb that. And then somewhat later, hopefully that comes back through me, filtered through my sensibility. And so that's how I kind of grow as an artist. Uh, otherwise, I'd still be making music. It sounds like it comes from the 1980s. So you got to keep moving along. So I do listen and learn. That's how I grow. As I analyze, listen, and absorb you know, things that are going on around me. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think one reason that I, I think as I got more into to video games and, and movies, and um, I, I think the sound design, it always amazes me how much complexity and and detail that goes into something like that because there are so many uh, different, again, movies or t- uh, TV shows, video games where like the sound design and yeah. the overall sound work can really make it an incredible movie in, in a lot of ways. And I, I just always, that's something that I always love hearing when I, I go see a movie or something similar where that that sound sound design is so incredible. And you just think about the amount of work that probably went into generating that. Okay, so it's interesting what you're saying. The sound design, even in music scores these days, is highly sought after. If you look at Trent Reznor mm. uh, and the work he's doing with his compatriot there. Sure. Uh, look, like the girl with the dragon tattoo, which was a very interesting score. Mm-hmm. Uh, the score doesn't fit anything that would be like what Stokowski might have written or whatever, <laughs> or certainly not what Beethoven would have written. But the thing is, does it fit the, the movie? And does it make the movie even more of a, an experience? And I and absolutely believe that the blue that that movie has, the cold, you know, Oslo, Norwegian winters and everything up is blue in that, that movie. A lot of it. And listening to his score makes me feel exactly what I'm looking at. I feel listening to it. Mm. So, but that score has a lot to do with sound design. It, it has not that much necessarily to do with a typical score. And, uh, and when you, you speak about sound design, sound design almost kind of moves from music into uh, the realm of sound manipulation. But it, you'd be amazed if you just look at uh, people that I, I used to have, um, like an office at Warner Brothers. And if you look at how these people work through a movie, you'd be shocked at the amount of detail that goes into all the aspects of sound that you just take for granted. Let's yeah. make it, it's already just, oh, yeah, sure, there's a background there. And this, but they're putting all those backgrounds in there. They're making you feel where you actually are. It's amazing how much work goes into all these things. And if you listen to something like Pacific Rim, there is so much work involved in that movie. Oh, yeah. It is insane. Same with Transformers. All these very high effect laden uh, films have enormous amounts of tracks going on there. I mean, it could be hundreds and hundreds of tracks of sound effects. 
Yeah. Uh, I, and th- that's a good point because I, when I was growing up, you know, I, that's something I, I really didn't pay attention to, but as I've gotten more well-versed in it, it's like you, you can rewatch uh, like some of the movies you've mentioned. And it's like, you're almost it, when you, you listen for that, it's almost like seeing a whole different film because it's a whole other layer right. that is there. Yeah. You could, you could explore so much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could lose yourself. And like, if, I'm lucky I had a, you know, Pacific Rim delivered to me with that. Like, and I could just mute the dialogue for this particular show that I was doing this great. And I'm listening to what these guys did on the sound effects. And absolutely. I mean, my respect goes out to my admiration for the sheer amount of work when you just kill the dialogue and you go like, Oh Lord, man, this is just layer upon layer upon layer. It's just so much stuff. And everything is cut to perspective. Like when the guy is farther away, when he's close Every one of these sounds that are creating all that you're hearing is always mixed in perspective, which means you're always following the character. If he's closer or farther, moving left and right. Just that is an amazing amount of work. And it goes on for minutes at a time. Like it's just <laughs> astounding. If you also, if you mute the music, you really get to hear just how much work went into that. Right. Uh, and but along with the ones that you've mentioned, are there any other, you know, films, TV shows, anything like that in particular that stand out to you as uh, over the last few years, perhaps that have really wowed you? Oof. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. I have, I have to think about. There's a lot that wows me. There's some more than others. And then it, it depends on what, you know, what you can't always tell is what a director's told the composer to do. Mm. So what he's actually responsible for having chosen himself or what the director has told him to do, or if he, if he's following a temp track that the director has already figured out for him. Mm. Um, generally speaking, I'm always fascinated by the composers that have a voice, their own voice. Uh, Danny Elfman uh, is amazing mm. because he just has his own approach you know, everything comes through Danny Elfman's psyche. I think he's tremendous. Um, I think James Newton Howard is amazing. I think Tom Newman has figured out his own sound that everybody wants, you know? Yeah. But when he first did like Shawshank Redemption to me is one of the greatest scores. Fantastic. But it was the very first time I heard that way of scoring. And I went, that's fantastic. Who is that guy? (laughs) So, you know, it's like, it was great. Uh, John Powell's done some amazing scores. The How to Train Your Dragon series is a remarkable score. Oh, yeah. It's kind of lost in the mix there. But when you listen just to the score, you go like, what magnificent work. It's great. So there's, there's you know, amazing talents out there. Of course, Hans Zimmer. Everybody knows that. Or whoever mm. is working with Hans on a particular score. So, you know, there's amazing talents out there. So I generally like to listen to some of these guys who have their own voice. No matter where, I mean, I can, even my daughter and I, we go to a movie and she'll go, oh, that's Thomas Newman. Like, oh, yeah. She'll go, that's Thomas. Oh, that's probably Hans. But yeah. she already knows because she's, she grew up in my studio here listening to me scoring. She'll go, oh, I know who that is. I mean, we almost have this game, you know, listen to like the opening credits go, who is that? And you go, ah, James Newton. <laughs> <laughs> it's just great. So yeah. you listen to these artists and they put their own stamp on whatever they've been asked to score. And I think that's just terrific. Also, Alexander Desplat also just he oh, has yeah. his own approach to how he's going to score something. And eventually I believe that directors trust these artists to bring their own soul or psyche 
to a project, uh, notwithstanding that they don't, obviously they listen to what a director has to tell them, but it isn't like they're trying to follow some other artist because of why'd you bother asking them to score it in the first place? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's, that's a, a, a good point because, you know, really all these people that you've mentioned, I, I love it as well. And I think how you put it is great is where they have their own voice. It's not necessarily, they're always working with a great director or on a, you know, a great script. It's like they, they, in whatever way they're able to bring their own voice to that project. And I like, sometimes I've gotten into the habit of um, even seeking out a score before I see a film or sometimes just going to see a movie for that composer, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's, again, it's like, as we, we've been talking about, it's kind of addicting once you, you catch it. Yeah. I mean, if for me, in order for me to, as I mentioned, uh, in order for me to grow, and aspire to be more better at what I do. I listen to some of these really well dedicated and very talented composers and realize that, you know, I might've scored it this way, but he did it that way. Hmm, interesting. And so, you know, you, you constantly listening in order to learn, but you can also of course, just listen in order to really appreciate the, these artists work. And that's what I, I presume you're mentioning. It's just like, yeah, this is great. I may not be sitting here and being asked to score something like that, but you can listen to it and go, that's just great work. It's yeah. wonderful. And it moves me because if music doesn't move you, I don't know why you would do it. So it's got to be this kind of a passion thing anyway. And and that's how I've lived my life with um, being passionate about what I produce or, you know, what I score. I, and I, I do feel like somewhere, I think I have a voice because I, you know, people tell me that I have like a, a style, mm-hmm. but the style really is my voice. It's the way I hear music and the way it filters through my sensibilities. And, uh, you know, I always hope that, there is something about the way I score something that somebody could say, Oh, that could be Ron fish. I think it's Ron fish, whatever, you know? Yeah. The greatest compliment that you can have. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Ron, it's so nice chatting with you. I feel like I've already learned, uh, so much more that I could probably (laughs) take in. Um, but is there anything else in particular that I, I haven't mentioned or perhaps anything coming up that you'd like to discuss or have we kind of touched on um, some of the, the major points? I think, you know, I'm asked a lot you know, over the years, like how do you, is it worthwhile getting into business? How do you get into business? And, all that right. kind of, and that's always, that always seems to come up. And uh, you know, I, I, I guess somebody listening to this, since I've been doing this quite a while, um, maybe you would want to know what I think of that. Um, yeah. Because that seems to come up a lot. And so, you know, uh, there's a lot of people coming out of Berkeley. There's a lot of uh, people coming out of these different schools, you know, who contact uh, composers and ask them, you know, hey, can I intern? And, um, and I taught briefly at USC. And uh, and it's fascinating. You have some really talented uh, composers. Some of them, of course, like James Newton Howard came out of USC. So, I mean... Hmm. Some really good uh, talents there. Um, so how do these people make their mark is an interesting thing. I do believe that working with a composer that might be very busy at a particular point in time is a way of getting your feet wet in whatever it is that you want to do. So if it's film or TV work or video games, whatever is available, um, or theme parks, um, the best way to get in is to be working with a composer and as a, an intern or whatever, as a helper, whatever that might be. And then usually the next question is, 
uh, how do I do that? And you do that by, by becoming indispensable uh, in using the tools that composers use, which would be like uh, Vienna Ensemble Pro, uh, Contact, uh, Cubase, uh, AnyDAW, you know, Logic, any of the, the popular ones. Unfortunately, you need to be able to get around all these different things because almost every composer is using a different situation, like a different combination of all these. Right. But the people that I know that have kind of come out from just helping somebody else and getting a foot in the door, realistically, that seems to be the way to go. Um, unless you happen to have a, you know, a direct contact with somebody that's a music supervisor and they're willing to give you a shot at it, and that's another way to go. But if you do not have a direct contact with somebody who could be hiring, then work with a composer that has just too much work on their hands and they need some help. Mm. And then, you know, you start working with a composer before you know it, maybe you get a cue on your own. And then, you know, then your resume starts becoming more like, this is what I did, not just what I helping this, this big name composer. Uh, and so it's called paying your dues. And you know, that's, that, that's a way to get in. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you you brought that up because it, I think it could be a, a kind of a daunting um, field to start out in, and you know, I, I think as you're saying, you kind of just got to put yourself out there, and you, you really never know what you may find or who who you may connect with. Oh yeah, networking, networking is definitely so important, uh, in particular now since um, social media, everybody's looking at everybody else. It's a wide open world um also of course people are doing their own compositions it, it is no more like you have to go to warner brothers to get something heard or you know capital records mm -hmm. everybody can publish anything everybody can be heard so that there's you know literally thousands of people composing there's thousands of people putting stuff out so it's it's more about like okay if everybody could be heard at the same time what makes me different than anybody else is basically working with somebody who already has busted through the network and is already working or touring or, you know, has songs out on, you know, Spotify, whatever it is. It's hooking up with somebody that's already busted through all the social networking and is, you know, risen above the, the general den. That makes the most sense to me that I can figure. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I, I agree. Um, well, Ron, I mean, uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I've really enjoyed it, and um, you're, you're welcome back whenever you'd like. If there's an, you know, another project rolls around, would love to get you back on sometime. Um, yeah, I'm and, working actually on a video game called Batora. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah, we can get that get back together sometime down the line. Um, yep. But yeah, uh, thank you so much again, and you know, you you know, please stay safe and, and take care. Okay, and I hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. You, you too, Henry. Stay safe in these more difficult times. Thank you. Alrighty. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody. I think that is about it for the show this week. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe on your way out. Thank you so much. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Music Buds. Check out themusicbuds.com. And yeah, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we'll see you next time.